Welcome to the Onyx Report, a program that critically analyzes the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society. I'm Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, black male advocate, and black male studies scholar. In the program, we examine current events while engaging concepts ranging from institutionalized anti-black misandry to gynocentrism from a black masculinist perspective. Our goal is to remind people of black men's humanity. Call in after a half hour to the show at 310-928-7733. All right. Welcome, people. Welcome back to the Onyx Report. This is Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. Uh, getting back to you, it's been a little minute. It's good to be back on the air. Um, today's show uh, is going to be an interesting one. It's actually one that's been requested by um, some good uh, some good brothers on Facebook. Um, so before we jump into that, as we normally do, uh, I start with some of the current events uh, that have taken place recently, uh, especially events that I've posted in social media about, had some responses to or issues with. Uh, so just to kind of give a little context to where we are as of uh, October 2nd, 2019, uh, a couple of things going on. The biggest news today is that ex-cop, uh, white female Amber Geiger in Texas, sentenced for 10 years for killing a black man in his own apartment. Um, with her believing or arguing that she had walked into her own apartment and shot him while he sat watching television. She was given 10 years today. Um, many of us were surprised she was sentenced at all, but the fact that she got 10 years is still an incredible slap in the face, especially when you consider how many black men have been incarcerated for far less um, and, and have actually gone to, uh, to death row, you know, for a variety of things that, that uh, don't even mirror this. So the frustration of that and then, of course, for those of us who've been watching this case, even seeing um, the brother of the victim, you know, hugging her um, in court after her sentencing was a hard pill to swallow because the disrespect was so profound in terms of just the low sentencing altogether. And it speaks to, for the most part, um, you know, it, white women's status in the United States, especially in regard to carceral policy. Um, you know, by and large, white women don't, you know, by any measure, go to prison in, any, in numbers that are relevant uh, in, in terms of uh, their relationship to black males. Nowhere near. So to see this happening in Texas, of all places, it's a clear marker at how different the dynamics are, especially when you consider that she'll be up for parole in five years. So, it, it, you know, and, and one of the things that recently also came out about her was that uh, she had sent some uh, some racist texts. Uh, defaming uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, and other even black police officers that she worked with. So, the, the you know, the discovery of this type of racism and then the blatant disregard uh, in regard to giving her any kind of, of, of punishment for her actions is, is a clear indication of the way status and whiteness and femininity work hand in hand uh, in this country. And where being black, being a black male, um, you know, can can make it extremely difficult for you to see any justice when when mistreated, especially by the state, right? And so, in that in that sense, just the the just the palpable frustration. Um, it was actually difficult preparing for today's show. Um, seeing that, you know, uh, there are instances where 
you know, whether I'm writing, reading or going through the stuff I'm going through in terms of uh, looking at the lives of black males that I'll often find myself, you know, with my hands shaking. I mean, there are nights where I've, I've, you know, been working on papers about black men and punched holes in the wall behind the things that I've seen. And this is one of those days. This is one of those days where um, for me, it's kind of difficult to maintain my 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 thought process in the midst of all of this. But this is kind of the thing, the kind of thing that happens on a regular basis. It's just if you have any humanity to you, um, it should be difficult at some point. Right. And that's kind of where I am at the moment. Because I see these kind of things on a constant, regular basis, and I process them a little differently whether I say anything about it or not. Um, so usually when I go through current events, I talk about things that are going on that fit the, the bill in that sense. Um, you know, like, for example, Stacey Dash, uh, actress, uh, Fox News uh, correspondent or former, um, was arrested for abuse. Um, apparently... She got into a physical altercation with her husband, a uh, Caucasian uh, gentleman, and, um, you know, they have video of her being arrested. And apparently he was the only one with some marks on his body. Uh, apparently she was up for $500 bail. Um, and I think about black males in this very situation and how many of them lose their lives, lose their homes, lose their families just behind the mere accusation, even without evidence of abuse. And yet... You know, um, when we see female initiated abuse, the response is different. And not only is it different in terms of abuse, it's different in terms of rape. I have a story I posted on Facebook a couple of days ago about a female, a Caucasian female teacher, 41 years old. And this is the title of the article, who apparently had a romp with a girl pupil uh, at a dance studio. The girl was 15. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the title of it tells you everything. A romp with a, an underage girl. You know, what the hell is a romp? You know what I mean? At the end of the day, if this was a 40-year-old black male and an underage girl, this would not be characterized as a romp. This would definitely be characterized as rape. So even the differences in how we interpret uh, phenomena shift. Um, and there's much to talk about. There's much to talk about in terms of, of rape, in terms of violation, in terms of abuse. This week, we found out that actress Demi Moore had been sold at, uh, by her mother at age 15 to be raped for $500. Um, and the man even told her as much when it was occurring. Um, and yet, in, the, in that dynamic, as you hear that and, you, and you, you feel for anybody that's been violated in such manner, for black boys who are violated by adults, even when... Even when violated by family members, male and female, there is no public outcry. So these are the kinds of things that kind of shape my thinking. Um, and then you still run across cases like this where you have Pablo Fernandez, 47-year-old uh, black male who is released from prison after 24 years after being wrongfully convicted of murder uh, based on a crooked cop and a lying witness. Uh, the man served 24 years. Uh, behind that. Those are the kind of cases that when I see ex-cop Amber Geiger be sentenced with 10 years, shatter me. Or not really shatter me, piss me the hell off and I end up shattering something else. But anyway, uh, this is the kind of thing that we need to draw attention to. And I invite you to, to call in um, to, to, to speak to the... Oh, man. <laughs> Call in and talk about it um, with me because at the end of the day, this is the kind of thing I'm trying to to get more brothers to speak out loud about. Um, we tend to accept this in many respects because it's our norm. 
So call in numbers 310-928-7733. For those uh, listening in on YouTube, make sure you hit the like button um, and support the, the show. Send it out, uh, share it with people, comment, so on and so forth. Uh, and also uh, subscribe if you haven't already. Okay. Another case that I posted about is a, a, a black male named Alvin Kennard, who in 1983 took $50 uh, from a bakery in Alabama. He was 22 years old. Um, August 29th, 10.59 a.m., he was released and given time served. He's 58 years old. He's 58 years old. The man did 36 years in prison for stealing $50.75 in cash in a nonviolent crime. This is the kind of thing that 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 incenses me. So when you again, when you hear about Geiger and you see cases like this where black men are getting out in their 50s and 60s and that's if they get out or get out at all. Because at the end of the day, we're still talking about millions, I mean hundreds of thousands of black men whose cases we don't know. We only hear about certain cases, right? This is all cases, right? This is also the week where we, we know about uh, uh, the two Hispanic men charged with aggravated assault when they shoot a Phoenix black male, black male in Phoenix, Arizona, nine times over the use of the N-word, where he basically made the argument, you can't say the word, and they shot him repeatedly. This is the kind of treatment that black men get. So this week, uh, I was going to talk about black masculinism and relationships, and I probably still will. But in the midst of that, uh, there was a new show that came out this Saturday, um, and uh, it was it, 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 a monumental uh, show altogether. Um, Harlem on the new channel Epics. Um, if you don't have the channel, I'm afraid I, I, I don't. I, I'm not sure how you can check it, but I, I know other people who don't have the channel that were able to find it. Um, uh, but if you get a chance to check it out, it's an excellent show. Gives a, a, a definitely a different kind of a, a approach to Bumpy Johnson. So Bumpy Johnson is is who the center of the show is is, and he's played by. Um, um, goodness, man, I'm so pissed off in my head. My head. I'm trying to focus. Excuse me, y'all. Anyway, he's played by Forrest Whitaker, um, and Forrest Whitaker also produces along with Swiss Beats, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, star-studded show, very uh, standout actors participating in it. You got Giancarlo Esposito playing Adam Clayton Powell. Um, you have uh, a magnificent brother named Nigel Thatch, I believe it is, who plays Malcolm X, and he actually looks like Malcolm, which is interesting um, because if you know, of course, you, if you saw X and you know Denzel's wonderful performance, the one nagging thing is that Denzel didn't look much like Malcolm, but his performance was so good, you didn't think he really stopped paying attention to it by the end of the film yet in this instance uh nigel looks very much like malcolm and plays the role well and this is malcolm during a period where he's still in the nation of islam and operating in harlem um and rubbing shoulders with bumpy johnson uh quite often in fact uh, as a matter of fact it's it's actually pointed out in the show that um bumpy and he knew each other when he was still uh in in the life so when he was known as detroit red it's it's intimated that uh, Bumpy was it contributed to uh, saving his life by getting him out of town before West Indian Archie uh, could kill him. Um, so it's said that they've known each other for a good deal of time. And after he undergoes his transformation into Malcolm X, um, uh, they, they remain associates 
but obviously with different uh, worldviews. So we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, um, so you have Giancarlo Esposito, you have Vincent D'Onofrio, you have a number of, 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 of high-profile actors involved, and there are more coming. Apparently, they will also be featuring a character who will play Muhammad Ali. Um, so it looks like it's poised to be an excellent show, and they cover the tensions between, you know, Italian mobsters, um, uh, you know, black drug use, uh, Harlem, poverty, politicians, you know, the whole deal. Now, what's interesting about the show, though, is it, it's one of the few that you'll find, if at all, that showcase the way politics work. For the most part, this is this is 1963 Harlem. So this is taking place as Bumpy is getting out of an 11 year sentence, which in the first episode, he's literally just getting out of prison uh, after serving 11 years and having to reacclimate to the Harlem that has changed in his time inside. And yet one of the interesting things you see within the first few minutes of him getting out of prison is, uh, you know, his wife is there and she comes to collect him. Uh, she's played by, um, I'm going to probably, you know, torture the name. The actress is Elfinesh Hadera, uh, who plays Mamie Johnson. And it's important that we acknowledge that um, much of this project is based off the work of Mamie Johnson, the real life Mamie Johnson. Um, apparently, um, she had written a book with Karen E. Quinones Miller, entitled Harlem Godfather, The Rap on My Husband, Ellsworth, Bumpy Johnson. Um, uh, special shout out to Floyd Jarvis, who points this out and, and sent the information. But apparently she put the book out because she wanted it to be clear about the life of her husband and what took place and what didn't. didn't. Apparently she was very frustrated by film depictions of her husband. And there have been plenty. There have been plenty. And, and some of them have been direct. Some of them have been indirect. Going back to 1971, you have portrayals of Bumpy Johnis, Johnson in Shaft, the original 1971 Shaft, played by Moses Gunn, but they called him Bumpy Jonas. In 72, you had Comeback Charleston Blue, uh, where you have a character who's loosely based on Bumpy. 79, Escape from Al Al Alcatraz. Um, you have The Cotton Club in 1984, where Lawrence Fishburne uh, plays the character I believe for the first time. And then in 1997, um, uh, Fishburne plays him again in Hoodlum. Uh, you have the 1999 film Life, um, where Spanky Johnson is played by Rick James. Uh, and that's a loose, uh, you know, loosely inspired by Bumpy Johnson. And then, of course, and this is where most of this generation will, will have probably been introduced to Bumpy through American Gangster, um, where he's played by Clarence Williams III. And uh, Frank Lucas is played by Denzel Washington. So Bumpy has been remembered in film and in, in popular, at least in popular discussion, uh, particularly in areas like Harlem. Uh, and, and he's mainly remembered because he was instrumental in pushing back against the Italian mob in terms of their control of the drug trade and, and its distribution in Harlem. Uh, although he himself is selling drugs, it's it's really a tension between his own business acumen and the tensions between Italians coming in and taking over. And of course, he's known for um, his his tensions with Jewish gangster Dutch Schultz. And that's principally what the film Hoodlum is dealing with in terms of Lawrence Fishburne. So Bumpy Johnson is is a is a is synonymous with Harlem and the memory of many black folk for better or for worse. And there are, there's a great deal of pain and frustration in that discussion, too. The moment that I reminded people 
that this show, Godfather of Harlem, started, one of the early responses I got was from an elder gentleman uh, who I actually know personally, but apparently who came from the area and remembered the legacy of Bumpy and was frustrated that I would point it out because of how much death that Bumpy was responsible for. And one of the things I pointed out to him is one of the reasons that the show was important is because it was one of the few that portrayed the relationship between Bumpy, um, Adam Clayton Powell, and Malcolm X. Uh, and it really kind of illustrates that there's an entire legacy, there's an entire history that we don't talk about. Now, in my courses, my co the courses I teach at Fresno State, I include some of this legacy, and it's generally referred to, you know, as gang studies. And that's the avenue with which, you know, I actually pull in certain research on, on gangs, on criminal activity and how that plays out in the black community. But we don't talk about it in polite conversation. And although you do have academics that definitely do work on these types of histories, it's still not generally spoke of. It's looked down upon. It's that street stuff. But here's the reality. The reality is when you're talking about black males, there's an entire history that we completely disregard in the monsterization of black men. In other words, we talk about this whole element of, the, of, of crime and, and the relationship with the black community. The only way it's acceptable to talk about is, that, of course, if you're denouncing uh, you know, what's, what's gone on and whatnot. But it's more complicated than that. It's far more complicated, and you even see that with with some of the film portrayals, particularly those with Lawrence Fishburne, but even with Clarence Williams III, and even right now um, in, in terms of uh, Forrest Whitaker, that there's a humanity to black men that you can't just disregard. So let's take a step back before we jump you know, back into Godfather of Harlem, and, and let me explain why. As a black masculinist, meaning that my work is focused on revealing and illustrating and holding up the humanity of black men. It's not about whether or not black men are innocent or, 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 or guilty in a given situation. It's what is the humanity in the situation and who are the people we're dealing with? And can black men be afforded that humanity in the midst of the discussion and the reflection on what's happening? So when you look at Godfather of Harlem or any other such representation, what we're looking at with black men who were involved in crime was a very tense context where the poverty the accrued disadvantage, the lack of access to resources, and the inability to gain wealth, especially at the hands of the state, where the state would literally be involved with burning down towns like Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Rosewood, Florida, then you see the conditions that black folk are in and the desperation that comes from that. But in the midst of that, you still have a profound humanity. So very early on, what I talk about in my courses in terms of you know elements of gang studies that I pull in is that for every immigrating group that comes to the United States, they often have a mob, whether you're talking about Russians, whether you're talking about Jews, whether you're talking about uh, Irish, whether you're talking about Italians. I mean, we know about the Italian mob because we've seen it, you know, in the film The Godfather and whatnot, but every group had a mob. And one of the reasons for this is because they didn't have representation, right, early on. They weren't represented by, they weren't protected by the state. And so on. Now, with African-Americans, it's a whole different dynamic. We were here since the beginning. We have been here. And yet, during slavery and after the formal end of chattel slavery, there's still no protection. There's still no acknowledgement, despite that you have the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which make us citizens, give us the right to vote, and so on. There's still no protection, especially considering that we don't actually vote for damn near a century after being given the right to, right? So with that, 
we had to create our own police force. We had to create our own protection force. We had to create create our own mechanisms for even finding employment, even especially by the time you get to the depression, right? In the 1920s. So what you had happening in places like Harlem is a mob, you know, uh, where you have people who are literally employed and protected um, by those in a local space because you couldn't depend on the police, right? And this is definitely um, uh, representative of a time period. And this still happens, but it's we know about it in the historical record at this point where you had the mob buying off the police, renting them at the low end, buying them off at the high end, buying off judges, buying off sentences, right? You have this kind of legacy taking place. And with the development of a black mob in places like Harlem, this is where you actually had any kind of protection coming from your own community. So when you look to these figures, figures like Bumpy Johnson, they're not just criminals. These are black men, especially, who are coming out of these environments, who have been statistically and, 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 and structurally removed from opportunity, who are making ends meet best they can, and while at the same time addressing issues. So stepping back into the Godfather father of Harlem. One of the things you notice within the first 10 to 15 minutes is by the time Bumpy is out, he's not out two hours before people have their hand out. He's got nuns who are running programs for children and, and you know, and, and, and those experiencing drug abuse who are coming to him for money to fix the roof, who are coming to him for money for the program. You know what I mean? It, it, and it's an interesting thing to see, to see, and I'm glad they put that in there. Uh, and you saw something similar with Hoodlum in terms of Fishburne uh, playing Johnson as well, where the role of this figure is very much like the title, Godfather of Harlem. But not just in the fact that he's he's reminiscent of some Italian mobsters, but also because he plays a fathering role in the community. People are coming to him for all kinds of resources. It even got so deep, there was one woman who came to him to ask him to help get her son off of dating white women. Now, when you think about that for a moment, what exactly does it take? How, how do you actually have to see this figure for women to come to this male figure and ask him to deal with her son seeing white women? Like there's a psychology there that's important to look at. And it says a lot about the role a figure like Johnson plays, right? So in that vein, he's a community figure while at the same time he's exploiting the community. But you don't get to just walk away with that simple explanation because he's also playing a critical role, even with figures like Adam Clayton Powell, who are coming to him for resources. Now, this is interesting. And there's even a moment between him and Powell where you can see the complex relationship between the two as they sit there, you know, talking to one another at a shoe shine at one point. And you could tell there's a there's a dislike of one another that's at play, and yet still a you know a chess game of favors and resources back and forth. Because although Adam Clayton Powell is an established politician, he still can't get on the ballot in certain areas without Bumpy's influence, right? And so he's looking for when I say resources, it doesn't always have to be money, but it plays a role in terms of what kind of access even a figure like Clayton Powell, Adam Clayton Powell has in his own area, right? And and he and, and Bumpy kind of have this tense thing where he actually calls Bumpy a Geechee, you know, former sharecropper coming out of the South, you know, dark skin, 
Um, and he kind of razzes him, he chastises him about that. And at the same time, Bumpy turns around and addresses him in terms of being light skinned and so on and so forth. And, there, and so there's this interesting kind of tension there that's pretty much that's predicated on class. It's predicated on class, and and it really is rooted in and really black class if you get at it because it's not only about skin color, it's about where they came from, it's about their status, and yet at the same time, Bumpy is needed, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, the relationship he has with Malcolm X, uh, where Malcolm being a former confidant, somewhat of an associate, and it's rumored that Bumpy actually paid for his funeral, um, but they had a great deal of respect for each other, as it said. However, Malcolm has difficulties with Bumpy because in that they're both willing to challenge the Italian, the Italian mob who's coming in and selling heroin um, and exploiting the community. Malcolm has no problem going to war with the mob to get them out, while at the same time, Bumpy agrees with that to some extent, but he's also trying to shoehorn himself back into a position of, of power in terms of the drug trade in the area, which conflicts with Malcolm. So they need each other, but there's tension at the same time. Um, and, and there's even a point where Malcolm is being used by Bumpy in a particular way. And this speaks to you know the role of the Nation of Islam as well as an enforcing agency um, in regard to criminality in the black community. So again, when I talk about this in my classes, I talk about the birth of gangs, uh, especially during the Reconstruction era and 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 particular to the Great Migration after uh, the, the move out of the South into other areas, the Midwest, the East Coast, especially in the 1940s. You can see the role that a mob plays that is both complicated negative and positive in terms of the needs of the community and the mob can take many different shapes and forms um, but the willingness of certain groups to advocate for the community uh, under the table in ways that are not considered respectable ways that we don't talk about in polite conversation and yet if you eliminate that entire dynamic from the historical narrative you eliminate a large percentage of 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 work that black males have done and I think that's been happening. I can say, you know, my formal education from 1992 to 2007, that's bachelor's degrees to doctorate. This history was never brought up. There's never brought up. I have degrees in Africana studies, African-American studies, cultural studies. At no point was this history brought up. Now, I show films that play along these lines that go through this history. Uh, one of my favorites is Bastards of the Party. Um, but in that film, one of the things I really appreciate, it is, appreciate about what it does is it historicizes gang activity in Los Angeles. And what you find is that generally black gangs go back generations. And when they form very early on, it tends to be very organic, but they form for similar reasons. And one of the reasons they end up forming is in protection of the community from vigilante racism. That's first. That's first. That's even before we get to police officers. Vigilante racism. And you have these very, you know, these old gangs that have been around in many instances from really the, going back as far as the 20s, you know, if, if not further than that, depending on where you're talking about. But these gangs that come up and, and they're protecting the community, they're playing a very key role because in Los Angeles, they would talk about, you know, uh, you know, white kids coming into black towns and throwing rocks into windows or beating up people. Um, and the police would classify them as just young kids acting out. So nobody was about to do anything about it. And so it ends up being young black men who actually become responsible for protecting the community. 
And these are black men who are called upon by their grandmothers, their aunts, you know, to actually step up and do something. And they do. They end up fighting these white teenagers and even dealing with police officers in a, in a very direct manner in a, in a context where nobody else is willing to. This is the, actually the origin. The origin of many black gangs actually came out of necessity and out of communal protection, out of necessity and out of communal protection. Whereas by the time you get to the 1980s, which we'll get to in a moment, there's a dramatic shift in what gang even means. But early on, up until the 1980s, the role of black gangs actually, you know, would often begin very organically based on communal need for protection, protection from racism, protection from, you know, exploited treatment and abuse at the hands of, of, of vigilantes in the white community and at the hands of the state, especially in regard to police officers. Right. And so the underground, you know, response that would often take place came from entities like that. And so the story of Bumpy Johnson is just is one of the most prominent in that regard. But we're talking about dynamics that happen across the country. Um, there was a series on for a while that dealt a little bit with this called American Gangster. And um, it was a regular show that profiled gangsters across, across the country. I'm not attempting to glorify it i'm not attempting to suggest that you know there's only one way to look at gangsters and we have to lionize them i'm merely saying that the history of gangsters is one more complicated than we want to give it credit for and then two actually representative of black males being advocates for their own communities while at the same time grappling with the moral uh, issues and ethical issues behind how resources are attained, right? Criminality and, and at the same time, communal protection. And so this tension back and forth becomes a very difficult one to negotiate. But the series I was talking about, American Gangsters, I believe they had three seasons. They were narrated by Ving Rhames. And it was a very interesting uh, show that kind of profiled what kinds of legacies took place in different cities across the country in regard to the rise of gangs. And so I, I, I suggest you check it out if you haven't had a chance to. I have the whole series. I used to show elements of it in my class. But again, the reason I do so is because there's a whole history in regard to black males that we sidestep and we don't give credit to because at the end of the day, we just it's we're comfortable dismissing it as a negative, dismissing it as something problematic and not actually dealing with any of the ramifications behind what they're doing and why. Um, so even by the time you get to the, the, the 1960s and 70s and you talk about an organization like the Black Panther Party, you know, I, and understand I'm using the term gang loosely. And, you know, obviously I'm talking about, you know, black men, especially, but black communal, you know, unofficial organizations or or groups that are dealing with the issues in the community um, and, and engaging violence at, at the same time when necessary. And so in that regard, you have, you know, groups like the Panthers, right, where without police service in the community uh, would actually, you know, would actually uh, uh, go around the community, police the community and the police themselves. Right. And it got to the point where, you know, even people in the community would threaten others, you know, particularly like if you talk about women being abused by their boyfriends, they would say, I'm not even going to call the police. I'm going to call the Panthers. That's the kind of role that I'm talking about with some of these entities. So Godfather of Harlem kind of portrays the complexities of those relationships in a way that I think helps us understand that painting black males with the brush 
of just being monsters really allows us to or supports us in ignoring a whole legacy of black male activism because of its distasteful surface uh, expression. But there's a critical role being played. Now, I don't at all suggest this is limited to black men. If you deal with criminality, if you deal with illegality, if you deal with all of that, you definitely have to include women. But we got to include women in, in ways that aren't necessarily always comfortable. I talk about this a lot in, in social media. I talked about it uh, in regard to particular celebrities, right? So if you look at the lives of people like Richard Pryor, whose grandmother was a, was a, uh, was a madam. And her sons, Pryor's father, for example, were pimps, right? And this is something that, that we haven't really reconciled, right? Because you see the same kind of thing with James Brown, right? Whose mother leaves him, he's with his father, and his father goes into the military and drops him off with his aunt. And he's raised by his aunt, who is, a, you know, really a low-level local mob, mobster. She's running her own out of her own home, right? She's got family members running different hustles, but also serving as muscle in different capacities. Even in, in film, even in fiction, if you look at the series... Um, on Netflix, I don't know if it's still there now, but the series Luke Cage, you know, it's fiction. It's definitely dealing with superheroes and so on and so forth, but it's also tapping into a legacy, right? And so in that legacy, one of the main figures you have there in Black Mariah and her mother are, are gangsters. You know, they're gangsters. So it, it, there's a legacy there of Black women as well that are involved with the life but we're not supposed to talk about that in either case, you know, and if we do talk about it, it's going to deal with black males, but black males have to be responsible for it. But I guess part of why I really want us to actually look at this with a different set of eyes is because there's an entire legacy, especially when we consider the experience and the treatment that black males undergo in society have undergone and still undergo and, and, and why it would lead to that. Now, when you get to the 1960s and 70s, I argue there's a critical shift that takes place with the black family in the black community. And I think it impacts this. Now, the, the show itself, Godfather of Harlem, takes place in 1963. So there's still a very different kind of relationship from now between many black men and women in the community. And this is the space that Bumpy finds himself in. So you find a different kind of relationship. This is this is at the early stages of uh, the civil rights movement as it's be beginning to brew. Um, and yet you still see a, a camaraderie, a connection in a way that we won't see after the 1970s, especially between black men and women. And so there's an interesting dynamic there that I think warrants some attention in terms of how men and women relate in the show, as well as you know what ends up happening after. But it's the 60s and the 70s where there are, there are a number of things that, that shift um, and impact the community uh, in a different way, and especially the family. So we have the we have the, the the role of you know welfare in terms of the man in the house rule, right? In terms of men not being present in order for their families to receive support and aid in the midst of poverty. And this is coming out of a group that's migrated from sharecropping in the South, come to the Midwest and the East Coast and the West Coast for opportunity actually able to taste that life for a few years, uh, especially during World War II, working, you know, blue collar jobs, you know, factory jobs, so on and so forth. And then when those soldiers come back from war, those white soldiers in particular, because the black soldiers come back, but don't get in many instances, uh, I think only a fifth of them may have even got uh, um, um, the GI Bill that they were due as veterans. 
Um, but white soldiers come back, not only get the GI Bill, but also get their jobs back. And so many of the migra newly migrated black folk in these areas are now relegated to the outskirts of cities or, or to these newly developed, quote unquote, ghettos. Right. And so it, it's during this time period that we see a massive shift in terms of, of, of black folk leaving the South, coming to the North, but also suffering from intense poverty in many instances. And so welfare becomes a key you know, a key uh, issue because you have black folk who are not able to get it as long as the father is in the home. And this is referred to as the man in the house rule. So that has an impact on the family. In the 1970s, the advent of no-fault divorce, or I should say the application of no-fault divorce, and the impact of family court policy and what this does uh, to black families, particularly during, say, a divorce, right? Uh, the impact it has. Um, you have uh, female-centered birth control, you know, with five different forms and 30 different options that, that allows black women to really be liberated from the constraints of, of their bodies, but not necessarily black males. Um, at the end of the day, it's 2019, and black men still have the same options in terms of birth control they had in the 50s, condoms, um, you know, the, the pull-out method, if you want to call that something, or, um, you know, um, vasectomies. Right. The limited option. So we still find ourselves in many ways subject um, to our, our our biology in ways our women haven't. Um, and then there are a number of others we, we talk about from financial aid to Title IX uh, to, to affirmative action hiring. Um, you know, these kind of dynamics that really advance black women in a very particular way, while at the same time, what we see happening with black males is being drafted into Vietnam and Korea and coming back from that. You know, dealing with the issues of war, dealing with the issues of drug use, dealing with the issues of Agent Orange, the different things they've experienced while at war, coming back and, and really not and still often not finding employment. Right. Um, so it, and those very men can often be blocked from Section 8, WIC and TANF if they owe child support. Right. So you're dealing with men who are coming back and, and for this and child support element of it is definitely after the 1970s. But I'm talking about the impact of war, uh, the impact of, of unemployment and then having black men not have access to state support. Right. Limited employment. Right. Most particularly in the 70s, by the time we see, you know, the the the, the manufacturing um, element of the American economy go overseas. This has a dramatic impact on black males who are working blue collar jobs, right? Um, and then you get to the war on drugs. And the war on drugs, as, a, as according to one of Nixon's aides, was targeted at the black community, most particularly black males. So when you start to see the numbers of black males incarcerated, it's really in 19, about 1996 that you start to see an uptick of prisoners in the United States. And those numbers continue to climb. And for black males, you reach it reaches a crescendo in about 2013, where you have over 900,000 black men incarcerated. And that doesn't speak to the black men that are newly out of prison and still unable to find work. As a matter of fact, statistically speaking, if they don't have a high school diploma, by the time they're incarcerated, they're pretty much saddled with lifelong poverty and low wage um, income, right? Uh, so you have increased incarceration, you have the war on drugs, you have Rockefeller laws that are giving sentences to black men for minimal amounts of drugs on their person in contrast to those who are carrying cocaine, you know, or overwhelming to those who are carrying cocaine, you know, or overwhelmingly white, whereas black men with crack were, were given, had the book thrown at them. These kinds of bifurcated sentencing practices further exacerbate the problem of black males uh, from the 70s on 
uh, and the impact of that. The dequ- decreased quality of education in K through 12, particularly to black men. And there's research to suggest that um, on gendered lines, this also becomes a problem. Um, uh, there's data to suggest that girls tend to do better under female teachers. Boys tend to do better under male teachers. And yet 70 percent of our teachers in, in K through 12 are white women alone. Just that we don't we're not even talking about women of color. So the number of male teachers, let alone black male teachers, is extremely low. And, and so no wonder we start to see a boom in the educational productivity of our girls, uh, but not one we see with boys. So boys, for the most part, you know, if they're athletic, they may have an opportunity to transition into higher education via sports. Uh, but much of the time we start to see them get hyper penalized uh, and poorly treated in, in K through 12, which, of course, impacts college recruitment. And so up to a few years ago, you can see statistics suggesting that one out of two black men are not even finishing high school. Right. And so the impact of that, that is extremely prevalent. So without education, without work options, this is the state that the black family finds itself in, that black males in particular find themselves in. And it creates a bifurcated reality between uh, black men, black women, uh, black males, black females. And so we begin to really look at what I call uh, the, the advent of a synthetic black gynarchy. In other words, uh, we have a community that is pretty much, for the most part, ran by black women, but not organically so, but as a product of these, these kinds of bifurcated forms of treatment by the state. The policies passed that hamper um, one group and advance another. But advance is difficult, you know, and I want to be clear about what I mean when I say black women are advanced. They're advanced to the degree that they're allowed to get an education. They're advanced to the degree that they're not incarcerated the way black males are, but yet they're not paid for their worth. So they're paid, you know, of course, below white women. But at the same time, um, the difference between black men and women becomes more apparent. So now we shift into this reality of the single parent led household at a time period where most of America is transitioning into uh, the two-parent family model, two-parent income family model, because the dollar bill tops out in the 1970s, loses its value. Competition internationally, you know, where uh, other countries around the world are catching up after the devastation of World War II and, and challenging the American economy all has an impact. And so the family across the board, across race, it, it, it begins to shift to a two-parent income Framework, But for black families, you have black men who are um, unable to find consistent work and support. And this has a dramatic impact in terms of education. If you look at the years from 1976 to 2016, in terms of education, black men have about two thousand nine. I mean, excuse me, two million nine hundred thousand five hundred five five hundred and fifty two degrees conferred. Right. Higher education. That's associates through doctorate degrees. Black men have about two million nine thousand five hundred and fifty two degrees from 1976 to 2016. Black women have about four million three thousand three hundred and eighteen degrees. White men have about seventeen million four hundred sixty six thousand seven hundred fifty degrees and white women top it all out with twenty three million one hundred ninety five thousand eight hundred sixty degrees. Black men find themselves on the bottom with half the degrees our women have, right? Because of the the climate we're talking about. Um, So what we're looking at is a way in which, and this is what I argue in my work, 
that black women are allowed to advance at the expense of black men for the purpose of undermining the family. Now, why do I say that? Because at the same time, we look at the civil rights movement. It was really the last broad-based movement in the black community that connected black folk across class, gender, sexuality, you name it. It was a communal uh, movement, and we haven't seen the like since. And the primary reason we haven't seen the like since is that it was at that point after the civil rights movement, most formally speaking, the early part of the 1970s, that we started to see black families undermined by movements that took pieces of it. So gender movements, sexuality movements, intellectual movements, student movements. You had movements across the board that attempt, that tapped into the civil rights movement and served to really break apart uh, a kind of union that was primarily black across these other dimensions, these identitarian dimensions that now separate us in ways we'd never seen before. So that kind of bifurcated split is important to look at. So when you go back to the era we're talking about in 1963, when we're talking about Godfather of Harlem, that didn't exist yet. Those kind of breaks had not taken place yet. Now, what you did have, unfortunately, at that time was a dynamic where criminals actually had to play the role of government. Because we didn't have government represent, representation to any great degree, right? So you had those who were professional criminals who had to, in many ways, play that role. And I would argue that we still expect people to do it. It's just now we've shifted to a celebrity model. So now, instead of talking about Bumpy Johnson, we talk about LeBron James. And we wait to see how his new school is going to do. And we wonder if he's going to open up another one. And we go to these various celebrities, athletes, and entertainers looking for them to basically play the role of government. And of course, we're frustrated when they don't to any great degree. Uh, but at the end of the day, they can't. Because as rich as they are compared to the average black person, and I've you know said this before in terms of you know black households, um, and shout out to Tone Talks for providing the data for many of this over the last few years, as well as Yvette Carnell. What we find is in that in black households, right? When we look at black households by multiple income um, before taxes. Uh, what is that? I think it's like about 40% of black America makes less than 21,000 per household, 60% less than, um, what is it? 36. I have a chart over here. I lost the screen for a second. Bear with me. And in less than, let's see, I think it's like, yeah, here we go. It kind of came off my screen a little bit. Uh, 60% less than 37,500 a year. Right. And by the time you get into the 89, uh, thousand range, the 89 to 112,000, you're really talking about, uh, or I'm sorry, 87 to 112,000, really talking about less than, than, than 10%. But when you really begin to break those numbers down, when you get over 100,000, you're talking about less than 5% in black American. Again, we're not talking individuals, we're talking households. So if you live with your family and there's three or four people making an income, that's what this chart, these charts are measuring. So when we look at black America, you get to the 100,000 range, you're talking about less than 5%. So from 100,000 a year to multimillionaire, if not billionaire status, you're talking about less than 5% of, of black households. This is the state that we're in. And this is what we're living with. So when we look to celebrities, much the same way people looked at figures like Bumpy Johnson, there's a dependence that we're looking for, a direction that we're looking for, um, that, that we expect to come from them because we at least have access to them in ways that we don't, uh, we haven't enjoyed with our own government. And this becomes somewhat of a problem. And I think it's a culture we've still maintained to this day and we need to challenge. 
because it doesn't work. We put a lot of onus on these individuals who make a certain amount of money, and they do make a lot in relation to the average black family, the average black person, but really in terms of the larger society, they don't. Especially when you talk about athletes who have a shelf life of about four to five years, and most of them don't make um, millions. They're not seven figures. Most are low sixes, if that, right? And you're talking about careers that only accept a couple of dozen per year. So at the end of the day, we've shifted in this dynamic. But going back to the legacy of gangs, even in terms of athletes and entertainers, many of them depended on the same criminal element we're talking about. Whether you're talking about, you know, about, you know, Anita Baker and Rick Ross or whether you're talking about, um, you know, the, the, the stories that you can listen to people like even comedians like Mike Epps talk about in terms of drug dealers who would actually um, support certain families, support certain individuals and prevent them from participating in crime if they had some kind of potential that they wanted to support. See, those kind of stories we don't talk enough about in terms of the roles that people played and preventing folks from engaging in crime, folks who demonstrated a degree of potential in some way, shape, or form. And that kind of dynamic that opens up the discussion as to what criminality actually is. Does it mark people as permanently flawed or not? And in, in reality, it doesn't. Because there are plenty that have actually made those contributions on a day-to-day -day basis and, and actually, while exploiting the community, protecting the community. But without many opportunities to acquire wealth outside of that, that there's often, you know, there's, there are very few other ways that you'd see that take place. So singers, comedians and athletes actually finding themselves supported by the same kinds of criminals. And by the time you get to the advent of hip hop, this is definitely a relationship that's that's far more uh, fluid than not, uh, because at least in hip hop, you could openly talk about uh, the relationship to some of these gangsters and whatnot. And I'm, I'm making it a point in some instances to try and use examples and in others. I don't I don't want to say certain kinds of names. But at the end of the day, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at a community that has been excluded to such a degree that we have had to rely on our celebrities and our gangsters in, in terms of support. And so Godfather of Harlem kind of showcases a little bit of that and shows us what that looks like and gets at the underbelly of what those relationships were that played out very significantly in terms of uh, a push because here's the thing when you look at bumpy whether you know whether you know the history or not whether you look at the impact he had the negative impact he had on the community or not at the end of the day for people that depended on him for families that received support from him for individuals that were able to get support from him and others like him um that was a very necessary necessary uh, stage and a necessary um step in terms of what was needed and unfortunately, we were impoverished to such a degree that it had to be. But nonetheless, that's been the, the model that we've used uh, for a great deal of time. And so I, I suggest that people check out the show and have discussions about that. Because the other element to this is that this history um, is not in the academy to any great degree. Um, it, it tends to be more in the community in this era and, and, and in this era, era of social media you find people who are able to come forth and talk about it with a, de a level of detail that uh, many scholars can't because this is not an accepted history in terms of the ivory tower, as it were. But it is a very real and necessary history to look at and becomes extremely important. So support books um, like the one I mentioned, 
in terms of the, the motivation behind the God, the uh, Godfather of Harlem, Harlem Godfather rap on my husband, Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson, by Mamie Johnson and Karen E. Quinones Miller. Support works like that. And there are plenty. There are books on the 5%. There are books on the Nation of Islam. There are books on a number of others that play a very key role in black history under the table. Um, that isn't necessarily considered respectable at all moments, but is incredibly important in terms of the day-to-day goings-ons. And this is not limited to the black community by any stretch of the imagination. Politics has always been in bed with criminality, has always been in bed with under-the-table goings-ons. It always has been and it still is. The only difference is when you acquire enough power to legitimize yourself in public memory, you don't have to worry about that. So one of the things we see with the Italian mob, with the Irish mob, with groups that were at one point not considered white, but were able to become white throughout the course of the 20th century, one of the things that many of them were able to do is by their um, legitimacy and transition. So their mobs are still intact, but they're no longer playing the same role they played in the 20s, 30s, and 40s because they were able to transition into legitimacy. African Americans in particular and black folk in general have been excluded from legitimacy in many ways. And so we've not been able to make that kind of transition. And, that, and that's not due to a lack of trying or poor organization. It has everything to do with, with structural underdevelopment structural underdevelopment and the ways in which we are kept out even to the extent of mass loss of life so i go back to tulsa oklahoma even when you begin to see you know organization you begin to see investment and entrepreneurship and advancement on class terms on economic terms a massive shift at underdeveloping blacks that that to a degree that makes no sense or is staggering to say the least and this is the reality behind you know, the stories behind this criminal element, because it includes it includes dynamics that we are told are not supposed to exist. And yet they do. And they dramatically impact the community. And so it's important for us to really get at the bottom of how these things works, whether you're talking about Crips and Bloods, whether you're talking about Blackstone Rangers, whether you're talking about, um, you know, all kinds of different groups that have played a central role. We have to delve into the history especially in regard to the legacy of black men, because there are many heroes, many who have sacrificed, many have done, who have done things that we wouldn't necessarily associate with black men or criminality in the current craze of hyper-criminalizing black men, even in black gender theory, right? In this current craze, this era we live in now, to talk about black men in such a light, even in the midst of criminality, is, is still something that we, 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 we don't choose to do to any great degree, and it needs to happen. Most particularly if you're talking about heterosexual black men, cisgendered heterosexual black men, there's an entire legacy. And this is just one aspect of it. So I'm not really trying to do an exhaustive walkthrough today. It really was just me saying, look, there's a show on to get a conversation started. And that conversation needs to happen because there's a whole history that highlights the complexities of being black being without uh, access to stability and dealing with a crude disadvantage. And yet in the midst of all of that, trying to find ways to survive and support one another. Now, I mentioned earlier that there was a dramatic shift in the 1980s in, in how we even defined the role of a gangster and what role they had to the community. And one of that and, and that major shift is basically, you know, really the war on drugs and what that ends up doing, because for the most part, um, 
you know, have a massive shipment on a regular basis of drugs being pumped into black communities from out of the country. And the chaos that it, it, that in, it entails from that is, is ridiculous in terms of, you know, really the the shift of free labor from the black community into prisons and the impact of long term poverty. This has a dramatic impact even on how we understand the role of the gangster versus during the 20s through the 60s in terms of the Bumpy Johnson era. Because in that time frame, you know, we find black criminals or whatnot in a whole different category, um, a level of competition that we had not really seen, and a level of destruction, especially in terms of crack, that is unparalleled. And so the, there's obviously not enough time for us to go through that. Maybe upon request, we might do another show and, and actually invite in some people that are willing to kind of come forward and talk about um, this history a little more in detail. All I'm really trying to do is suggest that this is an important area to look at and that by dismissing it, we do dismiss a critical aspect of black history that is still very much with us, but has morphed and shifted in form over generations but still needs to be looked at still needs to be looked at and i think forrest whitaker tries to bring some of that humanity to bear uh with a figure like bumpy um and at the same time uh is able to do so while still not shying away from the things that bumpy did that impacted the community negatively and i think we have to learn to have those kind of critical conversations that are not one-dimensional you know, one, one, whether heroic or problematic, we need to be able to talk about them in the way they manifest, which is basically as nuanced and complicated, yet critically important. So thank you for joining. So thank you for joining me for another week of the Onyx Report with Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. Feel free to comment on the YouTube post. Um, and, and or on my Facebook or Twitter post of the show and give us some feedback about what you know, what has taken place and what is not being talked about because it's needed. Yeah, good night.